through okay, Isaac? All right. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7, the end of chapter 7. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to look at this last part of the first section of the book of Acts. But when Jesus walked the earth, when Jesus was physically on the earth with his disciples, he spent a lot of time teaching his followers, didn't he? He had a lot of different sermons. What was the most famous uh, series of sermons? The sermon what? Sermon on the Mount, right. Many of the things that Jesus taught, um, I would say, are things that don't come naturally to us, right? Like things like put God's kingdom ahead of your own. It's really easy and natural for us to put our own world first, isn't it? Um, things like um, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. It's easy for us to be thinking all the time about our retirement and about savings and about storing up things on this earth and the stuff that we need, whether it's our homes and cars. Um, perhaps one of the hardest ones that Jesus said was probably this one. Um, I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Yeah, that's a toughie, isn't it? How many of you figure you got that one down pat? Yeah, perfect. Yep, scoring a thousand, batting a thousand on that one, scoring a hundred. After Jesus uh, left this earth to be with his father, the father sent the Holy Spirit. We read about that in the beginning of Acts. And the Spirit came to empower God's people to live the way Jesus commanded and taught. And the book of Acts, in the majority of our New Testament, is really, um, the, after the Gospels, is really about the people of God, like you and me, trying to figure out how to work that out. What does it look like to live the way Jesus taught when Jesus isn't physically there doing it next to you? What does it look like to have the same attitude and the same mind that Jesus had when things aren't going your way? And when you're in a culture that may be hostile to what you believe, how do you live in a way that honors Jesus? And the book of Acts and even most of the New Testament, Paul's letters, are all about trying to figure that out and how to live that together. And I think that's still our struggle today, isn't it? How do you live like Jesus? I mean, okay, so there was that big cliche thing, the WWJD thing, right? Anybody remember what that stands for? Yeah, and then it became WWJE, what would Jesus eat, right? WWJW, what would Jesus wear? I mean, you can just go through all of them, right? What would Jesus do was a big movement. I liked it in one way, though. It became very cliche, and it became very much just a, a tag statement, but it was the idea of asking yourself, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Our society today is a very angry society. It's a very reactive society. Our culture is often very intolerant, whether it's quiet quitting or whether it's just, I don't know, just dropping things, whether it's being violent against others that have different beliefs and not even willing to listen to them. Um, speakers coming to college campuses that are immediately booed off of the campus and are not given a chance to even speak because their views are different than those of the students. We live in a very intolerant and angry society. And in many ways, I think it resembles what the early church recognized and saw in the Sadducees. However, as kingdom people, and you and I are kingdom people, as kingdom people, we're called to live like our king, um, the one seated at the right hand of the Father, and how we live represents his name. How we live represents the Father. And how we live displays the image of God and the image of our Savior to the world around us. So let me ask you to ponder a question here. How do you treat those that oppose or mock or mistreat you? How do you treat your enemies? Last week we examined the narrative of Stephen, a disciple that was killed for following Jesus. And the morning, this morning, I want us to kind of zoom in on that incident. I want to focus in on that narrative. But before we do, I want us to get a big picture view of what we've covered so far in Acts, because we're coming to the end of a section, a book inside the book, if you will. Um, Acts chapter 1. Um, sorry, looks like I'm missing some notes here. Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 3. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 8, through, uh, verse 3. So Acts 1, 1 through 8, 3. Kind of makes up the, the introduction 
of the, the first part of the book of Acts. It's about um, the establishment of the church in Jerusalem. It's about the establishment of the people of God in the place where the Savior was crucified among the same people who crucified that man. So let's look at what that looks like. When the church was established, the birthplace of the church, we've read a couple things about it. What did the church look like? Well, first of all, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Acts 4.11 says this. Uh, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. The church was established with Christ as the cornerstone, separate from the temple. Remember, they're teaching something that sounds contradictory. The church is about Jesus being the cornerstone. Not the, the Torah, not the temple, but Jesus being the cornerstone. It had the kingdom as its message. Um, in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 3, he said, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up and after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the foundation of the church is Christ. The, the message of the church was the kingdom of God. The calling of the church was to repentance in Acts 2.36. As people heard this message about Jesus and that they had crucified the Son of God, they said, what should we do? And the answer was, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, and when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said Peter, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So its, it's call to action was repentance. Its leadership were the apostles. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, there are only 11 of them left, right, because of Judas. And so they consulted the Old Testament, the scriptures, the, the law and the prophets, we, we should say, not the whole Old Testament. It wasn't all canonized yet, but the law and the prophets. And they conferred scriptures that we need to have the 12th one. And so they called another man. And that was in Acts chapter 1, verse 26. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. The Holy Spirit was the enabler. It was fueled and powered by the Holy Spirit, not by Peter, not by the apostles, not by just a, a good message or a popular social message. It was fueled by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, 8, Jesus said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the, and the uttermost parts of the earth or the ends of the earth. Now that little narrative in 1, 8, where he says you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 3, is the witness in Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 7, in the beginning of chapter 8, you see that all of a sudden the church is moving out to Judea and Samaria. So, again, Luke is really good about introing things that he's going to bring up later and giving us clues as to where he's taking us on his journey, unlike some pastors do. Um, so, all right, so the Holy Spirit is the enabler, and then the signs and wonders validated it. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many signs and wonders were being performed by the apostles. So just as Jesus performed signs and wonders, the apostles were given the ability to perform signs and wonders to validate that they were indeed accomplishing the same mission as Jesus in Jesus' name. And therefore that Jesus' claims of resurrection from the dead were true. So that was what the church was built on. That was the foundation of the church, right? There's a lot of new things, a lot of things they'd never faced before. There were decisions they had to make that they didn't have to make before. They were in new territory. And have, you ever be a, have you ever been a part of a church plant? Right? Yeah. So when you're in an established church, there's a, thing that, a way that they do things. There's a rhythm. You know what to expect. You show up and there's music or there's singing or there's prayer or there's announcements or there's a message. They have certain ministries. You kind of know it's established. A church plant has nothing established except the fact that they want to reach their community. So everything can be different, and it can change from week to week, can it, depending upon who's there and what's going on. 
Well, this is the first church plant in Jerusalem. And they're learning about themselves. They're learning about what it means to be a family, to be the church, to be an assembly of believers. They're a new territory. How do they know what to do? And I think one of the beautiful things and one of the really big takeaways for us in that is that they use the, the scriptures, the law and the prophets, to determine what they would do. When they chose the 12th apostle, they went to the scriptures. As they defend their stance about who Jesus is, they went to the scriptures. Everything they were doing was based upon scriptural principles. And I think that that's an important lesson for churches today. What we do should be based upon biblical principles. So the early church, you know, they had it made, right? They're in Jerusalem. They've got all these followers, thousands of people. Life is perfect. Have you ever been to a perfect church? No, I haven't either. I haven't either. I think this comes pretty close because you guys are awesome. The fact that I can still be a pastor after what, 33 years is, is certainly uh, proof of the grace of God and the love of the brotherhood, right? Definitely. But every church has its problems, and by problems, I don't mean individuals. Every church has its problems, its struggles. And we examined how the apostles also struggled, um, the church struggled. The early church faced opposition from without, right? They had the Sanhedrin, they were being taken to court, they were being uh, beaten, lashed, right? They were being imprisoned. They had problems from without, and the early church faced problems from within. They had deceivers, people who lied directly to their faces and said, yeah, we did this, and they didn't. And then they had complainers, right? I'm thankful that the modern church does not have deceivers and complainers in it today, right? The problems that the early church faced are the same problems that we'll struggle with today. There are people being taken to court today because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their stance on his word and how, because it's countercultural to what our society says is acceptable. We shouldn't be surprised. And there are people inside the church today who are deceivers, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Oh, and Alexa has an answer for me. That's interesting. We also have people uh, who will complain. There's times that we don't get it right, and sometimes we need to hear that. It wasn't that there was a wrong thing in their complaining. They were complaining because there was, an over, there was something that was being overlooked, and that's a healthy thing. Um, and we're going to have that, too. We're going to overlook things, but hopefully by accident. But in spite of these challenges, the church kept growing. The people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, kept doing the work of God and sharing the Word of God. And the, and the church kept growing. Now, there was also some things that characterized the early church. The early church sounded like a really cool group to be a part of, didn't it? I mean, what did they do? Well, let's see, they took care of each other. They were generous toward each other. They spent time together, they ate meals together, they were unified. Now, don't read that as they all got along, but they were unified. There is a difference, and I want to be clear on that. We can be unified as to what's important and not, disagree, and, and not agree on everything, and that's healthy, right? So they were unified. They were also all Jews, Hellenistic or Hebraic, um, they were either Greek-speaking or Aramaic-speaking, but they were all Jews. So this early church that started, these were the characteristics. What we've learned, some of what we've learned from Luke about what it looked like to be a part of that church in Jerusalem, full of Jews, being persecuted by the religious elite of their day, the, the church of their day. And then at the end of chapter 7, things get shaken up a bit. We get introduced to this guy named Saul right? Um, Saul will be a key figure in the church spreading out beyond the city of Jerusalem and the gospel going to non-Jewish regions. And this morning we're going to look, we're going to look uh, closely at the end or the close of this first act, this first book, this first section of the book of Acts, um, if you will. So let's look at chapter 7, verse 54, and we'll read through there, through chapter 8, verse 3. When they had heard these things, they were enraged. This is after Stephen's message about 
what he was doing and who Jesus was. And, Jesus, and Stephen said, listen, you're stubborn like our ancestors. You're rebellious like our ancestors. You killed the Son of God. You're guilty. And the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the hand of God. Well, they yelled at the top of their voices. They covered their ears and they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses lay their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Sorry. Now Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. I think there's something that we forget about Stephen. We should remember that Stephen was not one of the apostles. He was just a disciple. He was just a follower of Jesus. He was the guy who was picked to serve tables and to wait on, on the widows and to make sure they got food. This same guy stood up and gave a sermon that sounded like it came from Peter, didn't it? It was like so close to what Peter said. But he was just a disciple. He wasn't an apostle. We don't know if he was with Jesus during his earthly ministry or if he just became a disciple and follower in Jerusalem or recently. We don't know if he was one. He wasn't one of the ones chosen to be the replacement for Judas. He was just a follower of Jesus who had God's spirit and wisdom in him. He was full of grace. His defense was amazing. But he was not one of the leaders. Yet he was serving and he was preaching and he was performing miracles. It's really a reminder of something we talked about weeks ago that the ordinary people of God, equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, dedicated to the Son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. The book of Acts is not about what the apostles alone did. It's about God's Spirit empowering His people, all of His people, to accomplish His work on this earth. Stephen was on trial. He proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God, and that the Sanhedrin had put the Son of God to death. The Sanhedrin was, had already grilled Peter and John and knew their beliefs. So why was Stephen picked out? Um, was it because he was popular? Was it because the leaders were looking for others to punish, to try to discourage people from following Jesus? They knew they couldn't get to Peter and John, so did they just pick the next guy on the list? Was it because Stephen was doing miracles? And they didn't like that because it threatened them. They didn't have that authority and they were jealous. Why did they pick Stephen? Perhaps they assumed that a disciple wouldn't know as much as the apostles did. I mean, obviously, Peter and John were leaders in the church. So if we just pick one of the random disciples, maybe we can use them and discredit the whole case, the whole cause. It's really important for Jesus' followers to know what Jesus says and did to know the word of God. But their response, we don't know why they picked on him, but their response to Stephen's defense was raw anger. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. They were physically angry. You ever been so angry that you kind of like clench your teeth? Anybody ever been that angry? Oh yeah. I don't want to admit it in, you know, in, in a church building. I don't want to do that. Well, they were enraged. They were filled with rage. That's what enraged means. They are filled with rage or anger, and they gnashed their teeth. At this point, had Stephen kept quiet, he probably would have just gotten beaten and sent home. But that's not what happened, is it? See, they couldn't stone 
Stephen for being impertinent. They could punish him, but they couldn't stone him for being impertinent. Stephen then has an apocalypse. Some of you are like, I've been part of that Bible study. I know what that is. Some of, Stephen has this apocalypse. Well, what is that apocalypse? It's a moment where heaven and earth overlap. The reality of the divine pierces through the earthly. And we read about it in chapter 7, verse 55. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. All right, so let me ask a question here. We have the glory of God. Where, traditionally, do the Israelites encounter the glory of God? Anybody? In the temple. That's correct. And before the temple, where? On the mountains, right. And the, matter of fact, the temple is on a mountain in Jerusalem as well. So it, you have the mountains and you have the temple. Stephen says, I see the glory of God. He says, he gazed in heaven, he saw the glory of God, and he said, I see the, the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's saying, I see the glory of God. And he's not seeing it in the temple. He's in Jerusalem. He's possibly in one of the courts of the temple. He's seeing the glory of God, not in the temple. Now, this could be taken by the Sanhedrin um, that Stephen was speaking against the temple. They already accused him of that. But it also would be taken as, Jesus, as Stephen, excuse me, equating Jesus with God the Father, putting him on the same plane as God the Father. When Jesus was on trial, he was asked, are you the Messiah? Depending on which gospel you read, one of them says, will you say that I am? The other one says, Jesus says that I am. And that he would be seated next to the Father. Let's read that in Mark chapter 14. As Jesus is on trial, the high priest stood up before them and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So Stephen has this vision where the heavenly was revealed to him, and he states, look, I'm seeing Jesus standing next to the Father in heaven. There's a little bit of a difference between those two statements, isn't there? Let's see if I can find the slide that I wanted for that one. I'm sorry, some of my slides are missing. In Mark, it says, Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man seated. In Acts, Stephen sees the Son of Man standing. Now, that's small. We don't think much about that. But seating is, seated is a position of authority and rule. Standing is actually considered a position of advocacy. You would stand to state a case. You would stand to plead the cause of somebody. It's as if Stephen is saying, I see Jesus standing at my defense before the Father, being my advocate. His earthly accusers find him guilty of blasphemy, but Jesus finds him innocent. Jesus is standing as an advocate. In John 2, verse 1, we read this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is still an advocate for his people, for each of us. He's still advocating for us before the Father. Jesus was condemned to death for claiming to be the Messiah. Stephen is condemned to death for claiming to see Jesus in the role of Messiah next to the Father in heaven. There's a very close symmetry of what's taking place here. And when the Sanhedrin hears this, there's a play-by-play -play given by Luke. There's five different things that take place um, that the Sanhedrin do. The five reactions. Um, in Acts, well, let's back up one so we can read it. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
First of all, they yell at the top of their voices. Um, you ever been so angry that you yell at the top of your voice? I, none of you have, I know, I know. Um, generally at that point, you really probably ought to step back, right? Because you're probably out of control if you're that angry that you're just yelling at the top of your voice. Uh, they yelled at the top of their voices. What else did they do? They covered their ears. Look at that. I don't know, it seems a little childish to me. So I'm like, why would grown men go, ah, start yelling at the top of their voice and covering their ears? Well, Jewish tradition would imply that it was to keep the heresy from penetrating their bodies, right? Don't let it come in because what comes into you can defile you. I don't even want to hear this heresy. I don't want to hear any more of it. So I'm going to yell really loud and I'm also going to cover my ears so I can't let any of that get into my head. Um, I think it's really cool that uh, Luke records this because Luke also recorded Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, he said, you, talking about these leaders, he said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised ears. Uncircumcised ears. When I think of circumcision, I'm not thinking ears. I'm just going to throw that out there. You have uncircumcised ears. Now, physical circumcision was a sign of obedience to God and being a part of his covenant family, a child of Abraham. Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about another kind of circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, right? Where we surrender our lives in obedience to the Father as true children of Abraham. Uh, he says in Romans 2, 29, On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So there's a circumcision of the heart, those that are inward have made that commitment to follow Jesus. But then there's this Luke thing about circumcision of the ears. You have uncircumcised ears. They don't want to hear or acknowledge what is from God. They're, they want to tune out what they're hearing and not listen to what God is saying. Thank God we're not like that. I've never done that in my life before. God, I don't like what you're saying. I'm just going to tune you out. But they're doing this on a whole new level. We all struggle with this at times. They're covering their ears because they don't want to hear or acknowledge what they're hearing could be true. They have uncircumcised ears that are willing to be obedient and to listen to what God's Spirit is saying. They rush at them as if they wanted to um, you know, get, get Stephen to stop talking as quickly as possible. They, they rushed at him. I mean, these are grown men. They're in control. They're in court. They didn't have to rush at him. They could have just told the, the guards. They had guards. Tell the guards. Take him away. But instead, they rush at him. They drag him out of the city. Now, this is because they were going to stone him. And the Torah says that if you're going to stone somebody, you have to take them outside the city. You can't stone them in the city. Okay? So if you're going to get stoned, go outside the city. The Torah taught that a person was going to be stoned. They had to be stoned outside the city. Um, and then they stoned him, which means they literally pummeled Stephen with rocks until he died of the wounds. That's harsh. That's really harsh. It's a very painful way to go. And it was also a very public event, meant to be a warning to others not to do the same thing. Stoning was actually commanded for several things in the scripture. I don't know if you know this, but there's quite a few instances where stoning was permitted. Not only permitted, but commanded, which is really kind of disturbing on a couple different levels. Like, God actually ordered people to do this to other people for certain offenses. Um, here's a couple of them. Uh, worshiping pagan gods, Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you worship pagan gods as an Israelite, if you, if you worshiped the god of Baal, or any of the other Canaanite gods or Babylonian gods, you could be punished by being stoned. Um, if you prophesied in the name of a pagan god, uh, divination, blasphemy, violation of the Sabbath, right? Adultery. Now, we're familiar with that one, right? Because Jesus had that person brought up, that the woman that was caught in adultery and they wanted to stone her. So we, get, we are familiar with that one from the New Testament. One of my favorites, though, and I think this would really help society a lot, was children who refused, refused to submit to their parents could be stoned. 
right? How many of us would still be in our seats today if that were law? Deuteronomy, it's a great passage. I want to read this one with you because I think it's like, wow, really? If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to them after they discipline him, his father and mother are to take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gates of his hometown. And they'll say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of the city will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you, and all Israel will, be, will hear and be afraid. So next time your kids act up, say, don't make me stone you. Or you can just say, don't make me take you to the city gates. And they'll go, what? I'm so glad that we don't have that, and I, hopefully that didn't happen a lot. It was meant to put fear in people. I see that. But the custom of stoning was very real for offenses that would, and, and sometimes it, they don't seem even. Let me just say that too. Like When I think about following other gods, when you're the, the people of Yahweh and you follow other gods and you, you get stoned, okay. But somehow I don't equate that with disobedience to your parents. But in God's law, if God has placed your parents over you and you are being rebellious against them, who are you really rebelling against? God. So there's that rebellion aspect of it, right? Um, it's awesome to think through, but some things just don't seem equal to me. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I wanted to be an RA, that were resident assistant, you know, where you, where you kind of are in charge of a floor. And um, just like two weeks prior to that, there was a huge water fight that broke out on our floor, and there was water guns and water balloons. When we got done, we had to mop everything up. And, I remember going down to the dean, the dean, there was a dean of men and the dean of women, and they interviewed this, this group interview. And the question came up, what do you do if you find a student with um, illicit drugs or alcohol or having sex or having a water fight? I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out, time out here, because my answer is different for the last than the first three. If it's the first three, we've got things we got to go, if it's the last one, <laughs> you better join in. So I, I didn't get the job. Um, I, was, I was declined right off the bat. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there's equity in, in the way that we judge things, is what I was trying to get at there. Um, to say that, you know, blasphemy versus disobedience to your parents, I don't know. So anyway, the custom of stoning, you had to have at least two witnesses, and the witnesses were the ones that were to cast the first stone. And that's an interesting one when you go back to that passage with Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Um, just something to, to chew on on that one. So they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, right? Um, the passage here in Leviticus tells us what, what we're supposed to do. Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp and have all who heard him lay their hands on his head and then have the whole community stone him and tell the Israelites, if anyone curses God, he will bear the consequences of his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he has to be put to death, whether the resident, whether the resident alien or the native. So they take him outside the camp and to stone him. This is what they were acting on in the Sanhedrin. So they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. We need to really take a moment to, to ponder Stephen's responses. First of all, Stephen's response to death. Stephen mirrors a couple different things. Um, his responses mirror his saviors with a few twists. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. As Stephen is being stoned in Acts 7.59, while they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, there's just minor differences here. What's, what's the minor difference that you notice? Father and Jesus, right? Yeah, Jesus said, Father, acknowledging God the Father, which Israel had no problem with God as the Father, Yahweh. Stephen didn't call out to God the Father, he called out to Jesus, therefore acknowledging Jesus as God. Which is, again, why he's being stoned in the first place. Uh, that's really big, and both of them 
are referring back to Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Yahweh, God of truth. When Jesus called it out, they had no problem knowing that this was the reference. Yahweh, God of truth. When Stephen says, Jesus, I commit my spirit to you, he's calling Jesus the God of truth and putting him on par with Yahweh, quoting the same verse. It's pretty cool stuff. However, Stephen um, had some more words that he said. The last words that Stephen said when he, uh, when he, just before he died, he shouted, do not hold the sin against them. And again, this is an echo of what the Savior said. Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Stephen says, as he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What's the difference? What's that? They knew what they were doing, yeah. Jesus' prayer is for the ignorance of those who crucified him. Stephen, he just told these people what they were doing. He just declared what they were up against and who Jesus was. They were killing Stephen not out of ignorance, but definitely in a willful decision. So Stephen's prayer was not forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He's like, don't hold this against them because they do know what they're doing. Stephen asked for God to show mercy, um, but he didn't declare those that were murdering him as innocent or ignorant. They knew what they were doing. Ultimately, God does answer Stephen's prayer, by the way. Did you know that? Because there's a man here named Saul who is guilty of the murder of Stephen, who God is not going to hold that sin against, but is going to reach out in mercy and meet Saul on the road and change him forever. I think it's easier to forgive sins of ignorance than it is sins of intention, isn't it? <laughs> it shouldn't be. But if someone does something to hurt me and they're not aware that they were doing something wrong, I have an easier time dealing with that than when I know somebody is purposely doing something to go out of their way to hurt me. It shouldn't matter as a Jesus follower. And I know that those words are easy to say, but they're really, really hard to live by, aren't they? Luke eleven four, 4. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, willfully or non-willfully. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's one of those hard teachings Jesus gave us. This is how you ought to pray, he said. And with that, Stephen breathed his last, or went to sleep. And we have our first martyr, at least how we call a martyr. Um, it's how we define a martyr. Anybody know what the word martyr means? Anybody from the Acts group? It means witness. Witness. A martyr is a witness, whether dead or alive. A martyr is a witness. That's what the, the Greek word is. The Greek word martyr means witness. Um, in this case, this is the first witness who gave up their life for the cause after Jesus' resurrection that we know of. The first martyr that was killed. The first witnesses, the first martyrs, were actually the women at the tomb, weren't they? They were the first martyrs, by definition of the martyr being a witness. But the first one killed was Stephen. Aren't you glad that people are not so barbaric today? That they would kill people because they have a faith that differs or that threatens their way of religion. The Federal Republic of Nigeria ended 2011 with the distinction of being the country most hostile to the freedom of worship. And Nigeria became known as the greatest enemy of Christian faith in the world a country with the world's largest Christian deaths for 2021, no fewer than 5,191 victims were unarmed and hacked to death or shot by Islamic radicals or hostile members of the country's security forces. According to the International Society for Civil Liberties and Rule of Law, or InterSociety, over the past 14 years, at least 52,250 Nigerian Christians have been brutally murdered at the hands of militants. 
In the same period, 18,000 churches and 2,200 Christian schools were set ablaze. There are places that are still hostile. That hostility is very evident abroad, and it's even growing in our United States. And just so we Christians don't get arrogant, we should remember that we were the ones who were barbaric when wiping out those who had different views than us during the Crusades. So how do we live in light of all this? As Jesus' followers, we're reminded to bless those who persecute us and pray for those who hate us. In Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And in Luke 6, but I say to you who listen, notice that saying, I keep bringing up that verse, say to you, I say to you who listen. In other words, those of you with circumcised ears, you could also throw in there. I say to you who listen, love your enemies and do what is good to, to those who hate you. We should be more like Stephen in our response, which means we should be more like Jesus in our response. And we have to remember that we will never know what impact our kindness and our forgiveness will have on others. Much like Stephen, we may never see the fruit of our sacrifice for the kingdom. Stephen called out for God to show mercy to those who were killing him, one of whom was Saul, but Stephen was not around to see the day that God got a hold of Saul's heart so that God could use Saul to set the world on fire for his kingdom. We may never see the outcome of it, but we have to be living the way that Jesus did, especially in these hard situations, like when people are against us. So just as Stephen was introduced to us as part of the narrative earlier, and then we see how God used him, Saul is introduced to us, and we're going to see a little bit later what happens. Saul appears to be part of the trial, the one that's in charge of the stoning. He's very zealous for his faith. He apparently did not agree with Gamaliel, right? Or Gamaliel, however you want to say it. Gamaliel was the one that said, if it's from God, don't go after him because you're going to be fighting against God. Just let it die on its own. And here, just a, a chapter or two later, Saul's taking people and beating them, imprisoning them, and killing them, stoning them, and then hunting them down to put them in prison, men and women, hunting them in their homes. Saul is going to do all that he can to squash this group of rebels. And we read in Acts, 1, Acts 8, 1 through 3, Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women and put them in prison. So Paul oversaw the stoning. Saul agreed with the death sentence for Stephen. And Saul ravaged the church. Interestingly, this is the only time in the scriptures that this word ravaged shows up, and it means to cause harm or damage. He was going to private houses. He was knocking on doors. Imagine being at a Bible study with your friends from North Country Fellowship Church and your family here, and you're at a study, and there's a knock on the door, and it's the police. And they're coming to drag you away because you're a Jesus follower. And they're going to put you in prison. They don't care if you have children at home. They don't care anything about that. You follow Jesus, you're wrong, we're going to haul you off and put you in prison. And after that, once you're in prison, we're going to decide whether we just beat you and send you back, or whether you're going to get stoned, depending upon how you answer. This is a, definitely a very religiously motivated, overzealous person. Um, and there's been a lot of those throughout history. What makes this unique is that this is Jew versus Jew. This is like an internal conflict in the nation of Israel. Uh, it's an internal battle, and Saul intends to win by removing the offenders or putting enough fear in people that they won't want to follow Jesus. We'll see in the weeks to come, it did not discourage the believers at all. Uh, it empowered them. We see that in, in um, eight, chapter 8, verse 4. Those who were scattered, I guess I thought I had that one there too. Those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. It did not silence them. They kept teaching. In our Acts study, we've heard the phrase, the doors of opportunity swing on hinges of opposition. And there can be no motion without friction. 
And we see this happening in, in the book of Acts as well. They did get scattered. They ended up going to Judea and Samaria, probably looking to get outside the reach of the temple guard. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the disciples were scattered. Now, you and I get that rearview mirror look, right? Like Luke is recording all this. We can read it in a couple hours. You can have the whole book read, and you're looking back and go, ah, yeah, but God was doing some cool things. You know, they persecuted the church. They moved out. Everywhere they went, the gospel was spread. You know, yeah, so it sounds like a really good story. But imagine you were in Jerusalem, and one of the thousands that were, that were meeting in homes, having meals, taking care of widows, and all of a sudden, you're fleeing for your life outside of Jerusalem. You no longer have the fellowship of your brothers and sisters. You're no longer having meals with them. I don't know what happened to the widows. Who's taking care of them at this point? And what little bit you thought you knew about what the church was supposed to look like is gone. And you have to start over while you're fleeing. For those Jews, I believe this was a very tumultuous time. Not a very comforting time. We can look back and say, didn't God do some cool things? They were probably looking at it going, God, what are you doing? How can you let this happen? But they kept preaching the word. I want you to understand this. Who was preaching the word as they were going? The apostles? Yeah, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It was the believers were preaching the word as they were going. The church, the people of God, as they were being scattered throughout the region, were taking the word of God with them and sharing it with the people they came in contact with. The apostles were still in Jerusalem because God wants to use all of his people to do his work on this earth. So what can we learn from all of this? I think there's a couple of lessons I want us to take away from this first section of the book of Acts. Before we look at what happens to the church and, um, in Judea and Samaria and what happens with, with Saul, um, there's some things that we can learn from this. First of all, if something is from God, it will not be stopped. Neither our own neglect or our own deficiencies. Have you ever not wanted to do something for God for fear that you'd mess it up? Our own neglect and our own deficiencies cannot keep God's will from being accomplished. Don't use that as an excuse. At the same time, even the best efforts of our enemies, the enemies of the cross, cannot stop God's will from being accomplished. Proverbs 19.21 is a great verse. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. It'd be good for us to keep that in mind, especially when things don't look like they're going our way. <laughs> no matter what the Sanhedrin will attempt, persecutions or execution, the kingdom of God will grow. No matter what happens in our culture, in our society, no matter what happens in our homes, in our families, at our work, in our communities, no matter what happens in our nation, the work of God and the word of God will prevail. Secondly, following Jesus is not easy and it may be costly. It's not a great recruitment slogan. It's not the video that you want to have for sign up, you know, follow Jesus, multiply your problems. It's really not like a great slogan. But it's a truth. While Peter and John were freed from prison and the angel and, and by the angel, and they seemed to be untouchable, Stephen lost his life for the sake of the gospel. And while we can pray for God to protect and deliver from our enemies, we should ultimately be praying, as, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, that God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Accepting both the good and the bad, the blessings and the struggles. We're not guaranteed that things will go the way we want, but we must never stop believing that God is good and that he has a plan. Our society believes in cosmic chance, as Christians, we believe in a divine plan. Just because that plan does not go the way that we want, and because that plan may be costly, does not mean it's, God's, it's not God's plan. These events will be a catalyst for an even greater spreading of the gospel and the writing of the large portion of the New Testament that we use to understand God, his mission, and our calling. Finally, we need to show kindness to our enemies because they are not beyond mercy. Catch that. When people are hating you on social media, when they're saying, when, when you make a post about how good God is and all you get is negative responses back, or when you speak out for something that you know God would, would approve of, such as protecting the innocent, such as 
um, unborn um, children. And people just start hating on you because of that stance. We need to show kindness to our enemies and not retaliation. We need to be praying for their souls, not for a, a good comeback. No matter what others do to us or say, we're to treat them with the same kind of mercy that Jesus showed us on the cross and that Stephen showed his enemies during his stoning. I imagine if it weren't for the Spirit of God in Stephen's life, as those people were stoning him, it would have been very easy to think, (laughs) God, give them what they deserve for what they're doing. You ever pray that way or want to pray that way? I mean, I think if we were honest, there's times where we really want the justice of God to rain down from heaven. Thank God he didn't do that to us. And we should be praying for those that are enemies because God can still work in them and change them as well. Are you able to pray for those that are your enemies? And if you do, how do you pray for them? Do you pray that God will destroy them like David did or that God that they'll receive mercy from God and come to know him. You never know who God will call and change that will have such an amazing impact for the kingdom of God. In fact, there's a a couple right now that I've been listening to in the media. One of them is a a famous tattoo artist who ended up um, surrendering her life to the Lord and is actually being attacked (laughs) by Christians of all people. And her plea is simply, can you just love me and love the other people who don't know Christ and let's work together um, on reaching them with the good news of the gospel? We need to make sure that we are praying for those that don't know Christ, that we are praying for their salvation, not for their justice. Justice will come to all. We should be praying that mercy comes to more. Does that make sense? So what do we take away from this? A lot of things. But in the end, Stephen is a model because he lived like Jesus lived. If there were WWJD bracelets or or sandals or whatever back in the day, Stephen would have had them. And we need to make sure that as we live our lives, that we're also living in a way that would honor our Savior who died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for the example of witnesses, of martyrs like Stephen, who heard your word and figured out through the power of your spirit how to live that word in such a way that he reflected you and your kingdom and your glory to the world around him. Father, help us to be like that. Lord, we believe a lot of lies that we could never reflect you well, that that we're not good enough or we're not perfect enough. Father, we know we're not but we know that you can make us what you need us to be and that your spirit can give us the power that we need to honor you. So help us as your church, as we flounder and struggle trying to figure out what it means to live in a way that honors you and the culture in which you've planted us, to be faithful to you, to be faithful to love the way that you love, and to understand that our circumstances don't change who you are or what you're doing. Teach us to trust you and to embrace what you give, and to make sure that we're, that we're honoring you and your name. We pray. Amen.